welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now today's message. Good morning, Covenant family. So good to see you all. My name is Joel. If you're a guest with us, I'm one of the pastors. I'm delighted that you've chosen to join us either here in the worship center or if you're watching from home, welcome in the name of Jesus. And we are in this book that some of you probably did not even know existed until about 15 minutes ago. Uh, Zephaniah. I think one of the great things about a series like this is it introduces us to some lesser known places in scripture, perhaps even some places that you're a little intimidated to go because you're not quite sure what it means. My prayer is that you will see how relevant this particular section of what we call our Old Testament has been, especially as we consider the theme of turning, repentance. Twelve men those are the minor prophets, giving us 12 different ways that God calls us to turn, to turn our lives around. And some of you have probably noticed already that the graphic we've been using in production for this is a giant U-turn sign. How many of you are, you know, you're on the up and up about that? Yeah, I have noticed that, right? There, there is intentionality behind that because road signs, well, road signs are why I passed my learner's permit test when I was 15. Uh, you know, I have two sons. Both of them now ha are, are licensed to drive at various levels, and, and both of them, when they took their very first test to get their learner's permit, came out, and it was exactly the same. Not only were they one question from failing, it was the last question. Right. It was the, ooh, I'm going to skip that, and then it comes back around. And finally, you know, you can't just skip that question forever. Finally, it comes back around, and you have to answer that question. And you've got, I don't know what the, the, I don't know what the law is in, in West Virginia, but let's say it's 18 out of 25. This is question number 18. All right? this is, they've gotten 17 right, and this is the last one. And both my sons came out and did this. And then when I gave them a hug and gave them congratulations, they said, I almost failed. I was one question away from failing. And I looked at them both, and I said, you are your father's son. All right? Because that's exactly what happened to me. And, and can we just be honest? The reason I almost failed is because most of those questions are stupid. <laughs> Take this one, for example. If four people simultaneously come to a four-way stop, who goes first? Now, you smarty pants people don't answer this question. Because, am I right? About 90% of you are like, I, I, I don't know. Yeah. And you know what? The, you know what the correct answer is? We live in Shepherdstown. It doesn't matter. That's what it means. Because everybody's just going to stare each other down until two people try to go at the same time, and you just pray there's not a wreck that holds you up or that, or that gets somebody hurt. But here's what saved my bacon on my learner's permit test at the age of 15. Road signs, baby. You know why? Because there's no words. They're big, they're bright, they're clear. All right? There's a reason that we use, I mean, road signs tend to be the easiest thing in the world. Like that U-turn one, they utilize pictures that communicate without words. And that makes them hard to miss, hard to misunderstand. And so as we enter sort of the last four weeks of this series, we've been learning that this is the practice of the prophets. They're not interested in all the minutiae of everything. Their messages are big and bold and clear and hard to miss. And among the most clear 
even though he is little known among the prophets, and, and honestly, the most ominous are the words that we're going to consider this morning, words that come from a man named Zephaniah. So a little bit of background here, because Zephaniah, has a, his story has a history behind it that would be helpful for us to understand, and he's got a, a royal family connection. He is the great-great-grandson, as it turns out, of a king named Hezekiah. Many of you remember Hezekiah, a faithful, godly king, came down with some kind of chronic terminal illness. He prayed for the Lord to heal him and grant him extension both to his life and, and also to his reign. And the Lord answered that prayer, gave him another 15 years. God is a, a miracle working God. He still is this day. He may not always choose to do that, but he is certainly capable. And, and we see that in the life of Hezekiah. And so we see 15 additional years of, of godly rule and godly reign, but that's followed by a combined 57 years of wicked rulership by his son Manasseh, and his grandson, Amon, wicked and evil kings. They didn't honor the Lord either with their lives or with their leadership. And so Israel, as a result, begins to experience about a half century of spiritual and then ultimately national decline. And so by the time Zephaniah arrives on the scene, the king that is in power is a young man named Josiah. He's the son of Amon. Amon had been assassinated, and in the ancient world, that's how it worked. If your father is the king and your daddy dies, you become king. And it doesn't matter what stage you find yourself in. It doesn't matter how old you are. And Josiah was eight. How's that? Yeah. How would you like to be an eight-year-old and be crowned with a crown that probably doesn't fit your head, a sovereign of a nation state? That, when I think about Josiah, honestly, that's the first thing I think about. It's like, what would it have been like to be an eight-year-old kid and have everybody else have to do whatever you tell them? Like, that's a parent's worst nightmare. Like, unlimited television, nobody's going to tell you to put your iPhone up. No, I mean, it's just not, like, no rules, ice cream and Lucky Charms at every meal, right? That kind of thing. As it turns out, Josiah, even at eight, is a bit more mature than that. We, just as a side note, we put such low expectations on our kids, don't we? And, and then when they screw up, they mess up, what do we, well, they're young. Yeah, well, eight, Sovereign rule. Just going to throw that out there for those of you with, with little ones. They're, they're often capable of far more even than what you expect of them. And this king decides that he's going to be faithful to God. It actually starts at around the age of 16 when he comes into a full awareness of what his father and his grandfather have done. By the age of 20, he is so sorely convicted about the, the, the idolatry in the land Four years of seeking the Lord results in this. At the age of 26, he begins temple renovations. And so they literally bust into the temple because at this point in history, nobody's even been in the joint in 50 years. And when they open the temple, they discover something else that they haven't seen in an entire generation, the book of the law. The word of the Lord, God's revelation of himself to Israel. And so using that, he begins to implement reforms throughout Judah. And so what you see in the life of Josiah is, is a formulation of a life after the heart of God. And because he's a national leader, he's leading God's people in that. Now enter into that Zephaniah. This is his extended family. So he's not just, he, he's not just prophesying to kings. He's prophesying to royalty and to the nation, and the royalty are part of his extended family. How many of you would like to preach to your extended family, your cousins who grew up with you, who know exactly how you are? 
That, that's where he's at. And, and the message that he brings, moreover, is not a positive message. Josiah is pushing hard. Josiah is saying, all right, here we go. We're going to revive the nation. And Zephaniah's overall message is this. It's too little, too late. Too little, too late. The prophet's call is to rebuke these people for their sin, to predict a coming judgment, to identify the remnant. We're going to look at that phrase here in just a moment, talk about what that means, and to warn the people about something that we've seen over and over and over in the prophets, this thing called the day of the Lord. But in Zephaniah, we see this employed more than any other prophet. He uses this term, either alludes to it, or he outright invokes it 19 times in three very, very short chapters. So we need to explore that. What does it look, what, what's that look like? What's he aiming at there? And there are two sins that he overwhelmingly, I mean, I'm sure there was a lot of sin in Israel and Judah, just like there's a lot of sin in our world today, but there are two in particular that he takes aim at that he says are going to be the cause of this coming judgment. The first one is idolatry, idolatry. Zephaniah chapter one, verse four, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal, or as we like to say in the South, Baal, all right? And the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs of the host of heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear by Milcom. So Baal, Baal, was sort of the generic name of the God of the Canaanites. Really, in their language, it just meant Lord. But, but what it did was it identified their idol as their sovereign. Milcom, on the other hand, was an Ammonite god that most of the early scholars would equate with another god you may be more familiar with. His name is Molech. And the worship of Molech involved child sacrifice. Now, why am I bringing all this up? Well, because so often when we read harsh warnings in Scripture about the judgment of God and the, the wrath of God, we tend to recoil at that as if we think God is too harsh. And sometimes I think it's helpful before we go accusing the character of God that we step back for just a moment and ask whether the objects of his wrath had it coming. Child sacrifice. That's what these people are doing. That, that's the level of their rebellion against him. They allowed their false worship to lead them to that point. Brothers and sisters, idolatry is deadly. When you misdefine God as he has revealed himself in the scriptures, it leads you to a bad place every single time. So idolatry is the first one. The second one is spiritual complacency. Chapter 1, verse 12, at that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are complacent. And then he defines complacency, who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. In other words, not only did they worship other gods, but they treated the Lord their God as just another deity. It was almost as if they, they were living their life in such a way that although they were supposedly monotheists, there's one God and only one God and no other gods exist, but they were living in a way that, that made it appear that they, they believed in the pantheon of gods. And that their God, the God of Judah, was just no different. They had adopted a perspective, I think, similar to what the deists would later declare of God. He's just sort of wound up to creation like a grandfather clock, and he's just sort of sitting there, and he's watching the gears turning, but he's not active in his creation. In fact, he's morally neutral toward what happens down here, and if he doesn't care, why should we care? And it's into that reality and those two primary sins that Zephaniah steps, and he speaks, and he makes case 
not only for a God who is active in his creation, but a God who's going to come judge on behalf of his creation. And I want you to see three ways that he does this. The first is, is just through direct announcement of judgment that's coming to Judah. Verses 10 and 11 of chapter 1. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar. For all the traitors are no more. All who weighed out silver are cut off. And then he says uh, further in verse 14, the, the great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries out there. It's a large flashing sign, basically. It's big, it's bright, it's clear. And he says, this is both unavoidable and unmistakable. Let me say this loudly and clearly so that God's people don't misunderstand me. This day's coming. So there's a direct announcement of the day of the Lord. Then there's a rationale for this judgment. In other words, he's, he's saying to them, I'm not really doing anything to you that I don't also do to any other people who turn against me. Chapter 2, verse 4, for Gaza shall be deserted. Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon. And Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nation of the Cherenthites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, the land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. Y'all need a breath? I, I need a breath. He goes on through the rest of this chapter to describe similar destinies for Moab, for the Ammonites, the Cushites, the Assyrians. This is my case, he says, for the coming judgment on sin. I judge everybody. Judah, why should you be any different? Why should you be any different? Why should you be the exception? So direct announcement, rationale for why this is coming. But here's, here's the hope part of Zephaniah. There is a universal offer of redemption. And that comes to us in chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. And all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exalted ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humbly and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. And then in verse 15, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Judgment's coming. I'm right to bring it. There's a way out. And that way out is for you to be brought into what he calls the remnant. Okay, So this, this is the overall point. To Judah, he says, because you are guilty of the same sins as the rest of the nations and peoples on earth, you are not exempt from my coming wrath. I have a friend named Nick Burleson. Our staff has met him. He's a pastor down in Texas. We were training church planters together in his home state just a few weeks ago. And I, and I remember him telling those, those church planters, he said, you know, there were two things about the ancient church that were very appealing to the pagan world at large. And it's one of the reasons that the pagan world uh, was so receptive to the Christian gospel. One was our absolutely clear and non-negotiable sexual ethic. And the other 
was our radical hospitality toward the stranger and the welcoming of all people, no matter who they are. And, and Nick said, and I agree with him, we have almost completely lost both of those. Both of them, all right? And I know what some of you are thinking. Oh, goody. It's the first Sunday of Pride Month. Let them have it, preacher. No, I'm not talking about the LGBT community. And I'm not talking about churches that, fl that fly rainbow flags. I'm not talking about, I'm talking about you and me. I'm talking about the fact that people sleep around, people live together, people are sexually immoral, people use porn unrepentantly, people act like that's no big deal. And God would say to you and to me the same thing he said to Judah. You think just because you're called by my name that your judgment's going to be any less severe? This is what I'm calling you to do, to escape this. But the hope of Zephaniah is this. There's a way out. There's a way out to rise above, right? This is what I want you to do. Just like every other nation you sin, just like every other nation you will be judged, but just like every other nation and people, I'm going to redeem a remnant. This is what you call a prophetic voice. It's loud, it's big, it's clear. In fact, one of the most powerful aspects of a prophetic message or what I call the prophetic voice and we have examples of that in the modern world as well whether it's a Martin Luther King or a Billy Graham or a Dietrich Bonhoeffer and we could go on and on with these people here's the prophetic voice the characteristic of it its ability within a particular time and place to number one rise above that time and place in a way that is in complete harmony with prophets who came hundreds of years before and hundreds of years after and declare the timeless, eternal, impenetrable truth of God, but to do it with scalpel-like accuracy speaking back into the very context that needs this word from the Lord so badly. That's what it means, all right? I'm, I'm rising above the moment. I'm not picking a side down here. I'm not playing around with all these little games that everybody else has. I'm rising above that because there's a Lord of heaven and earth who has a transcendent standard that has never changed, will never change. And then I'm going to grab hold of that word and I'm going to speak it right back into that very context. And what it does is it makes you unpopular with nearly everybody in the culture. But there's a remnant. There's always a remnant. Zephaniah knows this. Apparently, he has the, the, the faith to speak this. That's one of the powerful things. And it, it, Zephaniah is one of the most powerful examples of this, I think, among the minor prophets. What he says in this moment is going to be prophesied again 400 years later when John is exiled as a political prisoner on Patmos and writes the following in Revelation 7, verse 15. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and will serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. What does that mean? Well, it means that even though this original message that we're looking at today was aimed at Judah in a particular time, in a particular place, it's reflective of God's universal warning against coming judgment and his universal invitation to turn toward the salvation that he offers. And if I could just stay on that sign metaphor for a moment, Zephaniah does that by throwing four huge, unavoidable caution lights at you and me, okay? You ever blew past a caution light, not seen it? You ever roll through a stop sign that you haven't seen? Yeah, right? Don't roll through these. No Hollywood stops when it comes to Zephaniah. And here they are, caution light number one, get ready. 
because the day of the Lord is inevitable. Now, I mentioned at the, at the beginning of this message that all this is taking place on the front end of some actually healthy reforms in Judah. Josiah's grown up. He's become convicted about all the idolatry, and he's committed himself to, and his reign to the recovery of God's word. But according to Zephaniah, it's too little, too late for the nation. And we know that not only from Zephaniah, but from back in 2 Kings chapter 21, before Josiah was even born. His grandfather Manasseh had done such evil that the Lord made this vow to him. 2 Kings 21, 12. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. So by the time Josiah becomes king, almost half a century later, he grows up, he begins to work on reform, but the people have already long since crossed God's red line. It's already too late for the nation. Not for the people in it, but for the nation. Josiah and Zephaniah, they're doing some really good stuff together, and it actually will slow the coming judgment, but it won't stop it. I had an uncle that I loved very much, and I lost him in 2008. He died of cancer. And the way they found it was he had an emergency one evening, I presume connected to the cancer. They rushed him to the emergency room. Uh, they got him stabilized. They ran tests. And this is where they found a, a radically aggressive form of lung cancer. Now, that, that saddened me, but it really didn't surprise me at all because Uncle Boyce, he, he would, he'd go through several packs a day. Um, and we all know today what that, what that does. And if you're a smoker, I'm not condemning you. As one preacher said, smoking cigarettes is not going to send you to hell. just going to make you smell like you've been there, okay? So I, but, but, it, but it's not good for you, right? And if there's a way we can help you not have the same end that my uncle had, man, we'd, we'd love to help you with that. We've got recovery circles happening around here. Like there's some, there's some good things that you, you can avail yourself up, and I hope by God's grace that, that you'll do that because I lost my uncle. But here's the thing chain smoking almost several packs a day, sitting in that room, doctor comes in, diagnoses him with a radically aggressive form of lung cancer. And so reasonably, the doctor's first question is, do you smoke? And my uncle looked him right in the face and said, nope. <laughs> Have you ever smoked? See, doctors know this stuff. Like, you can't give Bill Clinton-esque kind of answers and expect Right, I'm sorry, that was ugly. Uh, you, you can't, you just can't. Yeah, well, it's kind of, well, present tense, but pat, no, 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 no. Here's, here's, have you ever smoked? Well, well, yeah, but I quit. When did you quit? About an hour ago when I walked through the hospital doors. Well, that's true, actually, and, and to his credit, he never picked up another one. It was great. It probably did extend his life, but it didn't stop it from ending. Because at that point, from, with regard to his lungs, it was, it was already too little, too late. That's Zephaniah's message to the southern kingdom. This day is coming, and your nation has reached a point in history where there's no stopping it. And what is true for Judah in this time period, we are also true, told, is true of the world. It's true of the world. It's coming. Judgment is coming. Sin is always here. We like to argue with each other about the kinds of sin that are worse than others. We like to argue with each other about history. We, we have this huge historical argument that's been going on in our culture for about a half century now. And, and at the risk, admitted risk of oversimplifying it, it tends to, it, it tends to follow along the, the, the thought path of two predominant 
kinds of narratives. So if, you, if, you, if you're more of a conservative individual, it sounds something like this. Man, there was once a time when we were in the middle of a great nation that loved the Lord and that did, did all these wonderful things and we had a united sense of morality. But now there's absolutely nothing like that and I don't even recognize us anymore and it's just getting worse and worse and worse. And if you're more liberal, more progressive, it, your narrative tends to go like this. Well, actually, the, the history of America is a history of oppression, and it's a history of horrible things in our past that, thankfully, we've repented of. So I don't think we're getting worse. I think we're getting better and better and better. So you, you want me to solve that for you, like right now? Both narratives are true, and both narratives are false. This, but this is what happens when you pick a side, and you're always looking at the other side like they're, Right? This is what happens. We, we get this truncated understanding of truth. Both are true. Both are false. When it comes to morality, reason, order, justice, the truth is far more complicated. Do you know why? Because human sin complicates everything. That's what it does. That's what it does. Scripture tells us in Romans 8, the sin curse that our first parents introduced into creation and that, and that you and I still carry in the present creation causes creation to repeatedly collapse in on itself. What does that mean? It, it means that human beings are created in, uh, in the image of God, and so we long for justice, and we long for solutions, and we long for greater peace and greater harmony, and, and so we try, to, we try to plug leaks in the dam, but every time we plug one, another one pops out. Every time we drive around the cul-de-sac, we're picking up a different piece of trash, and sometimes we do that with varying degrees of success. But what it means is, listen, our, to those of you who lean more conservative, I want to encourage you this morning to embrace the fact that God's world is beautiful with beautiful people in it. Man, don't walk around mean and nasty all the time. To those of you who lean more progressive, let me encourage you to remember that our rebellion has broken that world and you can't fix it with your ideas. Is everybody mad at me now? Just, all right, just checking that out. Our, our rebellion assures the world will stay broken. It doesn't mean we don't try to fix things. It's going to stay broken until he returns. Scripture tells us that day is coming. And so Zephaniah's message is simple. Here's what you need to do. You need to get ready for that day because you don't know when it's going to come. So that's caution light number one. Get ready. Caution light number two, get ready focused because your hope is not in this world chapter 3 verse 13 those who are left in Israel they shall do no injustice and speak no lies now he's talking about the remnant there and we're going to we're going to keep unpacking what the, what does remnant mean God's promise to the remnant is found in verse 20 of chapter 3 at that time I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. So you might ask, okay, well, whoa, we just read some dark stuff a minute ago, Pastor. Is God going to judge or is he going to redeem? Yes. Yes. And this too has a wider universal understanding. God is redeeming we know now from the New Testament those of us who belong to Jesus. And he intends to restore the entire cosmos, but that restoration is preceded by destruction. Any of you that ever bought an old car? Any of you that ever bought an old house? 
know this intuitively that the first thing you have to do is start tearing stuff down and tearing stuff out and making it look worse than it did the day you bought it, don't you? Because if you're actually going to make it right, you got to tear out all the rot. You got to sand off all the rust. You got to, and that is what is happening. We're going to, we're told, is going to happen to the world that we have broken. Second Peter chapter three in our New Testament gives us a graphic picture of that, using the language of fire that comes with such intense heat that the intense heat that the result is a almost total loss of the planet. That means my ultimate hope is not in this world, but in the next one. My friend Eric Mason at at Epiphany Church in Philly said this just a few days ago, and I thought, man, how timely is this that you and I should beware of a neo-prosperity movement within the American church that wants us to put our hope in something other than Jesus. And the sneaky, sinister, demonic way that prosperity preachers do this is by using Jesus as a means to an end. How do I know that? And here's the thing. I'm talking about neo-prosperity. Original prosperity, the guys that were, you know, that were asking you for your Social Security money while they were wearing $3,000 suits and flying in private planes and telling you not to insult them because they're men of God. I think most of us get the kooky nonsense that that is. I'm not talking about, I'm talking about something more sinister now. The Neo guys, they, they don't wear $3,000 suits. They wear $1,000 sneakers. All right? And here's the, here's the thing. Here, here's the, the core of almost every message they preach. Your breakthrough is just around the corner. Your victory is just around the corner. You're, doesn't it sound great? You're, it's coming. It's just, you, you don't know that. And God hasn't promised you that. And way too many people have abandoned real Christian faith because they bought into that crap thinking that God was going to fulfill a promise that he never made. But some fork-tongued minister told them that it was all about them. My friend Eric calls that, and I didn't get this until my wife explained it to me, biscuits and grits sermons. See, some of you got it already, right? Biscuits and grits. I'm sitting at dinner. I said, I mean, I, I love what he said, but I said, biscuits and grits. Biscuits and grits. And he, she just looked at me like I was dumb. And she said, honey, biscuits and grits. Comfort food. Comfort food, right? I mean, I, I, I'm not, I, I got glucose issues. I'm not supposed to eat biscuits or grits. But boy, they're good, aren't they? Right? Like, like you got to, you got to. But, but that's not, that's not really shouldn't be in God's plan for me, should it, given what's going on with my body and the way I need to take care of this temple that, that God gave me. And if I'm going to be honest about that, I don't need, so, so a biscuits and grits sermon is a Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday of comfort food. What's comfort food sound like? Your breakthrough's just around. Your healing is just around. That new job is just around. That new spouse is just around the corner. Yeah, listen, yeah, pastor, are you telling me there's no breakthroughs? Yes, there are absolutely breakthroughs. Are you telling me God doesn't heal? Absolutely not. God does heal. Are you telling me God doesn't give us prosperity? Absolutely, God does do that. But that's not the center of the gospel, and that's not where you're supposed to put your hope. Here's your hope. Here's your breakthrough. Jesus is risen from the dead. There's your hope. 
You give yourself to that no matter what happens. Whether you get what you want, don't be making the gospel about you. Don't be running around listening for people who are going to tell you everything you want to hear, load you up with all kinds of nonsense about yourself and how you're the center of the universe. This faith is about the Lord Jesus. Why is it about the Lord Jesus? Is it because he's selfish? Is it because he doesn't love you? Is it because he doesn't care about your health? Is it because No. It's because there's another world coming, so you don't need to be putting your hope in this one. Scripture reminds us here, not only among the Israelites, but among us, that the remnant are a focused people. Peggy Noonan, former speechwriter for President Reagan, wrote this some time ago in a Wall Street Journal opinion piece. Our ancestors believed in two worlds and understood this one to be the solitary, poor, nasty one. We're among the first to believe that we can find our happiness here completely on the earth and our search for it has actually caused unhappiness. Some of you have absolutely no margin in your schedules because you're... (laughs) And you don't even realize it anymore. It's just not even like you you can't even explain it. But if you stop and think for just a moment, oh wait, you don't have time to stop because you don't have the margin, right? You're like, I'm looking for happiness in something. I'm looking for fulfillment in something. I'm on a wild goose chase here. I'm looking for a golden goose egg, and those don't exist. That's what I'm looking for. Focused people in the remnant know what really matters. Their hope was not in staving off some day of judgment that the Lord had already told them was inevitable and unstoppable. Their hope was that they would be included in the remnant. How about you? How about you? Where's your hope? Is it in a career? I mean, it's fine to love your career. It's fine to love your work. I I love what I do. I can't believe I get paid to do this sometimes. I love it. But if all of your hope is there, I I mean, I don't know quite how to break this to you, but eventually somebody younger is going to come along, and they're going to do it better than you do it, and they're going to do it cheaper than you do it, and then you're going to be out of a job. Capitalism 101. I, I, that's that's gonna. Why are you putting your hope in that? How about your family? Families are wonderful. I love my family. Our oldest son's been home. He goes home today. Um, all oh, that's great. Your kids are gonna move out one day, though. You know that, right? Yeah. Now some of you are like, yes, <laughs> but but some of you are like, oh my gosh, no, I don't want it yet. The whole reason you had those little suckers is so they'll grow up and get out of your house and get a job and then keep you up in your old age. Can we just be, no, that's not all the reason why you had your kids. But the aim is to get them out of the quiver, all right? Your spouse, they're going to die one day, or you're going to go, and you're going to leave them behind. Not even marriage is forever. I know the Mormons teach different, but they teach falsely. Marriage is not forever. It is terminated upon death. Politics, surely, after all these years, nobody in this room is putting their hope in that anymore. So much energy goes into that, though. You're like, why do you bring that up? Because I know I'm I'm aware of where I live, and I'm aware that there's an election cycle that's already started up. We we maybe get 18 months without having to listen to all this nonsense now. And everything's about who's worse. Listen, no nation is assured in the end. I love where I live. 
I, I love that we just celebrated Memorial Day weekend. I love that July 4th is coming. My boys and daughter and my whole family stands when the national anthem is played. All that Look, I love it. But there is a day coming when the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom, singular, of our Lord and his Christ. You, you can't put your hope in a nation. You put your hope in a kingdom that includes every nation, tribe, tongue. Possessions, whatever that might be, money in your, the bank account, automobiles, homes, whatever. Everything you own, one of three things is going to happen to it. It's either going to get passed down to the next generation, it's going to be destroyed by the elements, or it's going to be sold off at a yard or a state sale. Everything you own. Everything I own. Does that mean I shouldn't take care of it? No, that's not what that means. Does it mean that I can't value it? That's not what that means. It means you, 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 your hope has to be somewhere else. Get ready and get focused. Your hope and mine is not in anything in this world, even the good things that we can celebrate. It's in the fact that I'm part of the remnant. Caution light number three, get right while the Lord is still patient with you. Now here's, here's where I want to just share some context with you. Zephaniah's warning came decades before the actual judgment. The day of the Lord is always preceded with hundreds of warnings from the Lord. Why is that? Well, because he's patient. He's slow to anger. Even in Zephaniah's time, that red line had already been crossed. There's no way to stop it from coming. But there is, Zephaniah's message to Judah, there is a way for you to end up on the right side of that line while you still live and breathe. But you know what? It's heartbreaking how few do. Even in Zephaniah, his, his use of the word remnant is, is sobering. If you look at it in the Hebrew, another way you can translate it is residue. Like that film that was in the shower when you got out of it this morning. Resi just, just a thin kind of veneer. Like that's what's left here. The bare minimum left after catastrophe. So apparently even Josiah's work reinstituting the law of God and worship only had a minimal effect long term. The people, by and large, continued to rebel. Jesus warns us this behavior is not unique to the Israelites. It's true of all of us. We got to, we got to, am I in the remnant? That's the, that's the picture. Can I, can I just be honest with you? Hopefully y'all won't get mad at me. I, I, I don't look at social media a whole lot anymore. My, my stuff is up there, but I, I don't do it a whole lot. Cause like most of you, you know, you scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. It can become very addictive. It can become but, but every once in a while, I'll run across something that celebrates something that may not necessarily even be bad, but I'm like, you're missing the point, right? And, and one of those is, is, is this whole prayer and Bible reading in schools thing. Like, I just, like, I, and, I, and I read it, and I, I, here's what I read, you know. Thank God there's some states that are going to put the Bible back in school. Can I just be honest? My first response is, you don't even come to church to do it there. You're talking about putting prayer in a place where my evangelical kid might have a Mormon lead them in prayer? You really think that's a good idea? Meanwhile, you don't lead your own family in it? When's the last time you cracked one open? There's the question. 
Not taking over the power structures, but whether or not God has taken over your heart and soul. Whether this is part of your life. That's what's going on here. There's all kinds of legal and legislative reforms. It did no good in the end. Judgment still came. Why? Because the hearts of God's own people were not warm toward him. They were using Jesus as a means to an end. He was the, he was the, the name they would throw up on their social media page when something went wrong in their life and they needed him to take the wheel. They're not the center of their life. And Jesus warns us about that himself in Matthew 7. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. But if you find it, and what better day than today? What keeps you from being part of the remnant today? I mean, as long as you breathe and Jesus refrains from splitting the eastern sky, there is time for you. And that's Zephaniah's warning to you and to me. Do it while the Lord's patience is still present. Get ready, get focused, get right. Caution light number four, get saved. Chapter 2, verse 3, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. It's interesting because the, the prophet's name actually means Yahweh hides. The, the Lord has hidden or the Lord has protected. This is his invitation to God's people in this time. And it's an invitation repeated when Paul issues it to you and me. And he, and he tells us how that happens in Colossians chapter 3. He says, if you have been raised with Christ, see, there you go. That's my breakthrough. Not that I'm going to get a raise. Not that I'm going to always be healthy. Not that I'm always going to have everything that I need. Not that I'm never going to suffer, but that Christ is risen from the dead. All my hope is there. We, we have, I'll be on sabbatical for a couple of months. Please do not miss this place, especially, uh, I mean, you, you're just going to miss some dyna, dynamic preaching. One of them by a young man, 26 years old, that unless the Lord actually and miraculously heals him, he will not be with us in three years. And he's planting a church on the eastern shore of Maryland. That man knows what breakthrough really means. He doesn't deny God's ability to heal him. But his ultimate hope is in the fact that Jesus rose from the dead and he will live also even if he dies. That's, that's the call. That's the call. If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life, this is your identity if you belong, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Here you are, here is Christ within the Trinity. Like that, those are the layers of protection for you when the day of the Lord comes. That there is a man named Jesus sent from God who lived a perfect life, kind of life that we were created to live, kind of life God expects out of all of us. But 
but none of us have been able to pull it off. We can't live it because of our sins. So Jesus comes and lives that life on our behalf. And then secondly, he takes our sins on himself and he suffers the penalty for us when he died on the cross and rose from the dead and ascended to the Father. And through faith in him, you and I are protected. We're part of the remnant. We're sealed and secured forever. And few be they that find it, Jesus says to us. Are we idiots? Are we? No, no, we're, we're not focused. We're enslaved to our sin. There are all kinds of reasons. What's keeping you from giving your life to Jesus today? What stops you from entering into this relationship that is all of your hope, especially when you are told in this prophet, you don't have to be afraid of judgment. You know why you don't have to be afraid of judgment? Because you don't have to pay for your sins. You don't have to do it. Zephaniah, we, we even see this in the prophet. There's no, no, there's no mention of Jesus here. He won't be born for several hundred years. But we see this in God's disposition toward the remnant. Look at verse 17 of chapter 3. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Your creator has a song about you. And he sings it when you come to him. Redeemed people mean that much to him. But make no mistake, he's not singing because you're pretty or handsome or rich or successful or effective or because of anything you have done. He sings because of what his son has done on your behalf. That's the call of Zephaniah. As he stands now in heaven on equal ground with the uniform witness of the prophets and the apostles, turn today. The red line has been drawn. Judgment is coming. It is just as sure as the fact that I am standing here, but you can be on the right side of that line if you turn from your sins to the salvation that he promises. There is a God in heaven who waits for this. He's waiting for you. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the big and bold and clear warning signs that we find so often in these men that you called out. And so, Lord, I pray that we would heed those today. Father, may we not ignore them. We live in a town with a set of railroad tracks that every single time those bars come down, those lights start flashing. Most of us honestly wonder whether it's a false alarm. And we start wondering and we start looking back and forth and I think about that and I think about how many people live their spiritual lives like that see the warning they see the flashing but they don't believe it's real and yet judgment just like that train is coming and so Lord may they turn and may they find refuge and may they find hope may they find fulfillment may they find happiness in the fact that because you live we all can live also may they put their hope in that today in Jesus name Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area, 
and looking for a church home. I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already receive from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.